Coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Reporter Whitney Bryan covers vulnerable populations for Oklahoma Watch. She's here to talk about her investigation into the Pottawatomie County Jail and what it took to report that story. Whitney, why don't you start by reminding us what we talked about last week and what you found in your reporting? Sure. So what we ultimately found is that the Pottawatomie County Jail staff and its trustees that oversee the jail, they've been covering up deaths of people in their care, people who have been detained there at the jail. Uh, We went back to 2017 when the current director took her position, and we found seven people have died since then. Uh, Only two of those people were reported to the state health department. Uh, All of them should have been. And, you know, there were just barriers at every turn around getting information. Um, Even families are trying to understand what happened to these folks. And the jail is just not providing anything. Now, at Oklahoma Watch, we rely heavily on documents and public records to uh, better inform our stories, including this particular story. I know you had a lot of challenges getting the records for this one. Tell us about that. Well, Ted, I search for public records, request public records um, on a pretty much on a daily basis. In fact, I I looked um, this week and found that I've personally already requested a hundred records this year from public agencies. So as you suggested, this is nothing new for us. And I have really never come across this many challenges in retrieving what are, you know, pretty basic public records from a jail. So we tried to get everything from booking reports, that's information on why people were booked into the jail and when and on what charges, to um, reports from the health department on, you know, these folks' deaths. We tried to get documents on incidents that happened inside the jail, things like um, beatings from jailers or even from, you know, another inmate that led to these people's demise. And uh, in every single case, we were ignored or even in some cases, we weren't even allowed to to provide the request for information to the jail. It's been uh, quite a whirlwind trying to get information. Now, county jails are publicly funded, so they're subject to the state's Open Records Act and the Open Meetings Act, uh, but they don't have their uh, records procedures posted anywhere. Uh, They refused, as you mentioned, to let you even submit requests uh, on at least one occasion. Uh, They told you you can only submit those requests on uh, certain days or certain times of the day. Uh, Then when they did accept your requests. They haven't responded to any of them. How do they get away with that? Well, that's the question we're asking, Ted. Um, basically, they they can't do that. Um, they are legally obligated to provide this information, not to me as a journalist, but to everyone in the public sphere. They are beholden to Oklahomans for this information. So this is not um, specific to journalists. This isn't specific to Oklahoma Watch. Anyone in the public should be able to go to the jail, request this information. Um, They should have procedures posted as to how to do that. 
and then they should be handing this information over because state law requires it, and they're just not doing that. So we're actually, um, you know, pushing back. We're talking to the attorney general's office and um, to some attorneys that we hope can help us pry some of that information free. Though I should say other attorneys uh, from family members who are suing the jail, they've been trying to do the same thing. And in a couple of cases, the jail even refused and ignored court orders to produce this information. And, uh, you know, I think we should mention that uh, public records are exactly that, right? It's a publicly funded entity. These are records that you and I and everyone listening are paying for with our tax money to create and maintain those records. And that is the spirit of the Open Records Act is that the public owns those. Uh, they're just uh, asking for uh, material that we've bought and paid for that uh, those entities are obligated to to make available to us. Um, what are the remedies when an entity won't produce those records? Well, that's a great question. Uh, as someone who has submitted more than 100 of these requests this year, I wish there were more remedies than are currently available. And I often think how difficult it must be even uh, more difficult for the public who who probably doesn't do this 100 times, you know, in, in six or eight months uh, that I've done this. So for me, you know, the remedy is often to continue pushing. Sometimes, um, you know, getting you involved, Ted, or um, even an attorney uh, writing a letter for us. You know, we've had that work before where maybe they didn't think I was serious or, or knew, knew my rights and the public's rights, um, but a an attorney reminding them that we do understand what they have to produce can be helpful. In other cases, we've had to sue. Uh, we're currently in a lawsuit over records with the Tulsa Police Department, who's been refusing those things, um, some records as well. And so far, they have not produced those. So, you know, we do have a few options, as does the public. But ultimately, um, you know, we can't walk into the jail and go through their records and pull what we want. Right. So that's uh, the civil remedy. It is uh, also a misdemeanor, right? They can be criminally charged uh, under Oklahoma law, but uh, I can't remember in the last 20 years seeing that happen uh, anywhere in the state. It's rare that you get a county's district attorney to walk down the hall and charge the head of another county agency with a crime. That's absolutely true. It's very rare. And actually, in this case, I did speak with the district attorney in Pottawatomie County about my findings. He was uh, obviously very concerned about the the seven people who had died. And, you know, I think his first questions to me were about the the potential crimin criminal ramifications of that. However, he did have a lot of questions for me about the lack of reporting that the jail did and the information that I'm trying to get from them. So we'll see if he takes any action. Now, all those interactions to, to try to uh, get some information from the jail, uh, you went to the jail staff, right? But if they're not responsive, if they're not complying with the Open Records Act, uh, they answer to someone else, right? Did you try to get help uh, up the food chain? I did, absolutely. So in most counties in Oklahoma, the sheriff is in charge of the jail and oversees it. Uh, Pottawatomie County, though, is a bit different. Uh, like Oklahoma County Jail, a lot of people might be following what's happening there. 
um, there is a, a trust, a jail trust. So in Pottawatomie County, there are five people, uh, five men uh, local to Pottawatomie County who uh, are public officials and they oversee this jail and its funding and its staff. Um, it took many, many weeks for me to even find out the names of these public officials who sit on this public board because all of the records, public records about this board and their activities, their meeting agendas and minutes, things like that, are kept, guess where, inside the jail, uh, which is not cooperating with me. Eventually, I did find out who was on the board of trustees and actually attended one of their meetings to try to get some more information. I did not have any luck uh, going that route. And uh, are those meeting dates and times uh, posted publicly so that anyone can attend those meetings? So they do have a, a piece of paper posted on the door in the sheriff's department. Uh, that's where they meet, though they're not affiliated with the sheriff. Uh, that does have the dates of their meetings uh, on the door there where, the, where they meet. So if someone, you know, in Pottawatomie County wants to attend a meeting, they can go look at that sheet what they don't have posted um, and should is the agenda for those meetings. And again, to get, you know, previous agendas or minutes of what they did in these public meetings, the, all of that information is inside the jail. Do, do they include what time the meeting starts? You just mentioned the dates. I believe at the top of that sheet, it does say that the meetings start at 930 um, and then just has a list of dates when they meet. All right. So uh, you did manage to go to one of those meetings, right? The trustees were there or all but one uh, were in attendance that day. So uh, did you call your uh, concerns to their attention and ask them to inter intercede and, and help uh, with this investigation? Absolutely. Um, going in person is always a good option when we don't have people responding to our requests. And, you know, uh, my first concern is always that people aren't receiving, you know, voicemails or text messages, uh, emails, Facebook messages, LinkedIn messages, all of the things that I had sent to the trustees prior to going to this meeting. Um, and at the meeting there, as you mentioned, four of the five trustees were in attendance. And I asked them if I could tell them what I think I know and some of the issues I'm having getting public records from the jail. They refused to even hear my findings for the story or speak to me at all. At the end of that meeting, uh, they left the building and said if I wanted to provide them with any information that I had, that I was welcome to leave a handwritten note at the desk there at the sheriff's office, which I did with a business card and have not heard back from anyone. At this point, you think there's any chance of getting any of those records you've requested from the jail? Uh, Ted, I'm not super hopeful, which is disappointing because, as you mentioned early in our conversation, Oklahoma Watch, we are champions of public records. We take this very seriously, not only for our own reporting needs, but for the public. We want you, the public, to be able to go to this jail and request information on a loved one or, you know, whatever it is that you need to know. In this case, we are going to keep pushing. We are, as I mentioned, talking to the district attorney. Um, we are talking to other attorneys to try to find alternate ways to get this information. We are trying to reach out to the jail's attorney, uh, whose name we still don't have because the jail is refusing to give it to us. 
and we have filed an open records request uh, for the name of that attorney. But as you can imagine, we have not received any information from that request. So it's not looking good, um, but I'm not giving up and we're going to keep pushing and asking questions and demanding answers. Well, ultimately, uh, when a judge orders uh, somebody to produce records, um, if they ignore that, Georgia judges generally uh, don't take that very well. And uh, there are repercussions that go along with that. So at some point, uh, we would think we would eventually get those records, but it may may take a while and cost some money. That's absolutely true. And in fact, with the Pottawatomie County Jail, there are a few families currently suing uh, many of them for public information that they should have just been able to ask for and receive from the jail. Um, in the case of Ronald Given, it took about four years for video and records uh, related to his death. He was beaten by jailers at the Pottawatomie County Jail. Uh, about four years after he died to get that information. There's another case right now um, where a judge ordered public records to be released by August 5th, and we still don't have those records. All right. Well, thanks, Whitney. You can read all of Whitney's coverage of uh, the deaths and the ensuing cover-up at the Pottawatomie County Jail on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Whitney will be back uh, next week's podcast for part three of the series to detail more of what she learned in this investigation. Keaton Ross covers democracy and criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. In his latest story, he examines the state's recent efforts to wean off private prisons and what that means for Oklahoma prisoners and correction staff. Keaton, could you give us a brief history of private prisons in Oklahoma and uh, why some argue that they're problematic? So going back to uh, really the mid-1990s into the late 1990s, uh, the state saw its prison population really start to go up, uh, due in part to some truth and sentencing laws that took effect, uh, requiring some people mainly convicted of, of some violent offenses to serve at least 85% of their sentence before being eligible for uh, parole or early release, that sort of thing. So as that was happening, the state started working with uh, some of these private prison um, companies to send their prisoners off. Uh, we saw three facilities open between 1996 and 1998. Uh, why some argue that they're problematic, uh, there's the, I guess for starters, there's the the ethical question of, is it uh, a good thing to tie incarceration and punishment uh, to, to profits in the corporate world? Um, and there have also been some concerns raised that the the facilities themselves and the, and the programs that they offer, that sort of thing, are are typically less subpar compared to most government-run facilities. So that's sort of the argument there. Well, what's changed to allow Oklahoma to reduce its reliance on private prisons then? The state has really seen its prison population decline over the past five years or so, um, due in part to the passage of State Question 780 that reclassified uh, drug and property offenses from felonies to misdemeanors or certain um, certain offenses of that regard. Um, so there was that. And there was also um, the COVID-19 pandemic delayed a lot of uh, court proceedings and, and that was ha had a pretty great impact. So the state saw its prison population drop 
And now that that it's recovered, it's been it's been pretty stagnant. But uh, the state, for the most part, has been been able to maintain that that drop that happened kind of sort of at the onset of COVID. So uh, with less need for beds, uh, the state uh, has been able to uh, sort of deal with its own prison population more effectively and not uh, not need all of those private prisons that it did in starting in the late 90s through the 2010s. So with this reduction in the state prison population, uh, how many private prisons does, does the state contract with now? So the state is going to take over the Davis Correctional Facility in Holdenville, uh, which we've reported on in the past. Um, there have been several violent incidents there. Uh, last year, a state corrections officer uh, was murdered by an inmate. Uh, that was the first line of duty death of a corrections officer in several years. Um, so there's been that there's been prisoner on prisoner stabbing. So, uh, several issues there and the, and the state is going to take that over at the beginning of next month. Um, once that happens, there will be just one state private prison, uh, left. That will be the Lawton correctional facility. It's about, uh, eight or so miles south of, of Lawton proper. Now, uh, that change in Holdenville is set to happen in just uh, a few weeks. What's DOC doing with that prison? So they're, they're going to take it over. Uh, the, the correction staff that are currently Core Civic employees, that's the, the company that has run and operated the prison for several years, will we'll transfer over to, to state employees and, and they'll start running it as uh, a state facility. So what will change for the people incarcerated there? Not much initially. Uh, the Department of Corrections says they're going to stick with Core Civic's current practices as far as how the facility is run um, and then look to, to implement certain changes, uh, implement new programs, that sort of thing after an initial evaluation period. Um, there is some hope that that once it transfers over to a state facility that uh, things like commissary prices, phone call rates, um, will there'll be somewhat of a drop off there going from the, the private rate to the, the state's rate. Um, but as far as how the prison is run and, and new programs and that sort of thing, um, it might take take some months for, for those sort of changes to be seen. All right. What about the staff? So the staff will begin receiving uh, state benefits, as I mentioned uh Previously, um, they'll they'll be state employees uh, at the same pay rate, um, so that'll that'll be the the big change there. Now, uh, <clears throat> a corrections department spokesperson told you that a similar takeover could happen at that other private prison, the one in Lawton. Uh, would that be a similar process? It would, yes. Um, just likely the state coming in and the employees transferring over to being state employees and in a similar sort of evaluation process. Um, the Lawton prison is the largest prison in the, in the state's correction system houses about 2,600 prisoners, uh, like 12% of the overall prison population, something, uh, that's ballpark numbers there. Um, but so likely not going to close that prison. Um, but it would be a similar state takeover, uh, more than likely. Now, as you reported some years ago, a uh, private prison companies aren't the only entities that try to make a profit uh, through 
uh, incarcerated people and their families. Can you elaborate on that a little? Sure. There have been uh, some concerns raised, uh, one about phone call rates, especially during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic when visitation was shut down um, and phone calls were uh, basically the only method, or you could send letters, but one of the main lines of communication between uh, prisoners and their families or loved ones. Um, so there was concerns about those rates. Um, and also recently, um, several of the state prisons have tablets um, that are, you can per- send messages or purchase music or movies. Um, and the companies give these tablets out for free. The prisoners don't have to pay for them, but there's concerns that um, the cost of sending the messages and the music and those sorts of things are are way above what you would pay on the outside and um, basically um, trying to make more of a buck than they should off of uh, the folks who are incarcerated and, and their people outside. Um, so those are sort of sort of the concerns um, that, you know, the private prisons may be, be dying, but there's still private interests uh, within the correction system that uh, – people are concerned may be exploiting uh, prisoners and their loved ones. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can read all of uh, Keaton's coverage of the state takeover of the uh, private prison in Holdenville, as well as his other work on criminal justice and democracy at our website, oklahomawatch.org. In his most recent story, reporter Paul Money's discovered Oklahoma now has the highest rate in the region of vaccination exemptions for kindergartners starting school. It's another sign of just how scrambled attitudes have become in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Paul, what prompted you to look at this immunization data? Yeah, so as, as children go back to school, it kind of made me think of a, a story we did a few years ago looking at uh, the school data in this particular uh, bunch of exemptions for kindergarten vaccinations. And so we, we tried again to get that school data. It's not quite ready at that level, but we decided to, to take a look at just generally how people have been affected by the, the fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic, how that scrambled the attitudes to vaccination and other public health measures. So what, what kind of uh, exemptions does Oklahoma allow for vaccinations? So Oklahoma allows uh, three types of exemptions. Uh, that's probably the most among most states. There's probably a handful of other states that offer that many type of exemptions. And it basically offers medical exemptions, which requires a doctor's note and approval. And then two other types of exemptions. One is religious, uh, that you can have a pastor or other faith leader sign off on, but you don't have to. And then the final one is just philosophical or personal objections to it. Well, uh, what does the state require from parents or guardians who want to opt out uh, of those shots? You alluded to a couple of those things. Is there um, any kind of documentation they have to provide? Can they just say, hey, I don't want to do this? No, they actually do have to fill out a form and give it to the school. And then the school then collects those forms and sends a copy to the state health department. So the state does know, you know, generally which students in school do not have their recommended series of exemptions. And of course, that means that they don't have to have all of the uh, shots. They could just exempt out of a couple of them or one of them. And so it just basically means that there are some record keeping requirements on the state and the school to keep track of this if an outbreak does occur down the road. 
All right, now, what's been the trend? Uh, you mentioned one of the exemptions is a medical exemption. A doctor has to sign off on that. Uh, has has that rate increased as well? It has, and we've looked at the last 10 or so years of data from both the state and the federal side, and that's re- remained pretty flat. Um, it may be because you do need a doctor's um, consent to do that, and that's obviously a lot of conversation between the parents and the guardian and the doctor themselves. Uh, but it's about flat at about half a percentage point for the last decade or so. And how did the COVID pandemic affect attitudes toward vaccinations and public health? Yeah, so I mean, generally this this issue has been fairly um, standard public health measures for almost a century now. Um, and it's really in the last 10 years or so, it's become an issue with people kind of going to the internet, looking at different kinds of things, um, possibly misinformation from uh, vaccine uh, safety side of things. But also from COVID, we, we obviously remember uh, all the 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 intense discussions we had as a society about masking. And then when vaccines came out and were available for all of age groups, um, that was obviously a big flashpoint for a lot of people too. So I think that scrambled a lot of people's thinking in terms of what is normal public health and what is a good preventative measure for a community. I, it, you know, it's been widely reported uh, that one of the things that sort of set off that skepticism about vaccinations was a uh, uh, a study, a very small study that was uh, published in 1998 by a doctor that suggested a link between vaccinations and autism. And uh, that that study was very quickly debunked as uh, fictitious uh, or or unscientific. And it turned out that the, the doctor who had published that uh, had come up with his own vaccine uh, that would compete against the common MMR vaccine. And what he was really doing was trying to sell his vaccine. And uh, his his uh, license was taken away and uh, the study debunked. But um, uh, that idea got out there through social media and other means. Um, has that kind of fed into the uh, COVID vaccination fear, as well as the uh, the increased rate of uh, concerns about vaccinations overall, and and why is that still floating around? Yeah, I mean that was more than twenty, almost twenty five years ago. Now it was Dr. Andrew Wakefield, a British uh, doctor that that had a very small study. It was maybe I think maybe a dozen people involved in that study in the first place. Um, it, a lot of people saw right at the time that it was a problem. Uh, it wasn't until several years later that, that the British Medical Journal uh, retracted that uh, study from its publication. And of course, he lost his medical license in Britain, but has kind of popped up over in America and is a kind of a support role for some of these um, strident anti-vaccination uh, groups out there. And of course, uh, it's still an issue because people are looking on the Internet for a lot of information. And that, a lot of that information is still out there. People get worried about that. It causes a lot of skepticism. Um, and then you've got obviously now um, a major uh, party candidate, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who has been anti-vaccine for quite a while now and has a lot of conspiracy theories around that, is now running for the Democratic nomination for president in 2024 and attracting some, at least a lot of media, media attention. Hey, well, what have other states done with their kindergarten immunization exemptions? I think I read somewhere that uh, we've got some states that have eliminated everything except the medical exemption and then others uh, uh, like Oklahoma that have just sort of opened it up to, to let parents say, I don't want to. 
That's right. Yeah. We've kind of seen, a, at least in the past few years, a couple of states, um, not in our region, but at least a, a, around, the, around the country, going opposite directions. Maine got rid of both of its uh, religious and philosophical exemptions a couple of years ago and then saw its vaccination coverage rates rise for kindergartners. And then at the opposite side, Mississippi, which um, has never had a religious exemption, at least since the 1970s, um, a, a group of parents sued their health department and a federal court ju- judge ordered the state to provide a medical exemption. And Mississippi, uh, as bad as some of its health outcomes has been, has been fairly good in, in this particular area for kindergarten vaccinations. So public health folks are keeping, keeping an eye on Mississippi, uh, seeing how many folks take that religious exemption when they didn't have one before and used to have fairly good rates. Uh, when was the last time Oklahoma lawmakers looked at the state's exemptions? Yeah, so like many topics of the t- Capitol, this has become kind of a flashpoint. Um, it's been almost a decade now since um, a state senator kind of proposed, uh, didn't wasn't successful, but at least proposed eliminating the philosophical exemption. Uh, that attracted a lot of pushback. Um, there was a group that kind of formed fairly quickly and has since kind of morphed into a more parental rights um, and kind of libertarian side of, of things on public health. Uh, they organized very quickly, fought that back, and actually was a small factor in him not running or him not losing his reelection campaign a few years ago. Uh, since that time, um, public officials, um, in this, both elected and um, inside the state health department, have kind of um, taken a hands-off look at the exemption side, and no one really talks about that much anymore, although it's still all available. All three types are still available in Oklahoma. When is the uh, next snapshot of the immunization survey data uh, expected to, to surface? Yeah, so the, the state health department uh, and the state department of education puts these surveys out to schools between basically November and April every school year. Um, they then collect the results. Uh, we're expected to see the results from the next from the last school year, which is 2022-23, uh, maybe the beginning of next year. But in between times, we're expected to see some of the, the school level data from that previous survey year that we, we talked about in our story from 2021-2022. Uh, that should hopefully be finished in the next few weeks. And we'll probably have another snapshot at the school level vaccination exemption data for kindergartners. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read all of uh, Paul's coverage about vaccination rates in Oklahoma and what affects those on our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.